the University of Tennessee Howard H. Baker, Jr. Center for Public Policy, and the Knox County Public Library are partners in a community study of the book Justice as Fairness, a Restatement by John Rawls. The following recording is part four in a five-part series. In this episode, Matt Deaton of the UT Department of Philosophy discusses the institutions of a just basic structure. So this is our fourth installment of our book, and we have a different perspective perhaps tonight. We have Matt Deaton with us this evening. Uh, he'll talk, talk to us about part four. Matt is uh, not a law professor. He is actually in the Department of Philosophy, so it'll be interesting tonight to see if there's a difference in how it is that we're examining uh, some of, of the concepts here. Um, Matt is currently running his dissertation on Rawls' idea of public reason. He is um, a native Tennessean. He's from Vonor. He's an Air Force vet, a UT alum. Um, and um, as he mentioned when I asked him for a quick bio, he said he would love to teach in East Tennessee. So we're going to try to make that happen. I don't know how, but, but we'll try. Anyway, we're so pleased to have him here tonight, and we thank him for his time. Thank you guys for being here on this very cold evening. And with that, I will let Matt uh, take it away and get us started um, with part four of, of Justice as Fairness. Thank you, Amy, and thank, thank all of you so much for coming, especially on such a, a terrible night. I prepared a, a handout for you. We'll uh, go through this handout rather quickly, which will give us ample time to discuss points. All right, so yeah, this is just an overview of the chapter. I just went through and made some nice notes. I assume that much of the stuff you read was confusing. I assume much of the stuff you read was also controversial, so hopefully at least getting through this we can understand what Rawls said, and then we can discuss whether or not we should accept it. But there are some, there are some nice juicy topics within this section of the book. There are some some of his writings on tax policy. He mentions gay marriage, and he also mentions health care. So three very hot topics for us to discuss. So I'll, I'll open with just two opening points that Rawls makes just in the first couple of pages of this section. He says, quote, I outline a family of policies aimed at securing background justice over time, although I'll make no attempt to show that they will actually do so. So that's a heck of a hedge. That's on page 135, right at the very beginning. So he's really hedged his, his bets by saying that at, at, at the outset. But Rawls was a humble guy. Maybe he wasn't trying to insulate himself from critique so much, but just be humble in his philosophy. Secondly, he points out that we're constantly engaged in reflective equilibrium. Have you discussed that in the, the previous sessions, those of you that have been coming? Does anyone recall what reflective equilibrium is? Okay. All right, so reflective equilibrium, this is the way Rawls does political philosophy, the way Rawls thinks we should do ethics. And when you're engaged in reflective equilibrium, you want to try to bring your higher-level theory in line with your practical judgments. So we all have bedrock, fundamental moral intuitions about certain things are okay and certain things are not okay. Philosophers come along and they give us these theories that try to make sense of and organize those bedrock moral intu intuitions. Both of these sides of the equation have effects on one another. They're in a reflective, they're in a uh, reciprocal relationship, such that if we get a good theory with a good grounding, with some good arguments behind it, that'll have bearing on the way we behave on the ground. Also, if we examine particular moral instances, particular political policies, any sort of a moral particular, those will have bearing on what sorts of theories we're willing to accept. So reflective equilibrium occurs 
when we bring our higher level theory in line with our baseline moral intuitions. And you should be doing that the entire time you read Rawls, the entire time you think about political philosophy from the Rawlsian perspective. So if there's anything in Rawls's policies that he suggests tonight that strike you as ridiculous or as blatantly immoral or blatantly unjust, that would be reason to perhaps either revise the theory or to drop that particular intuition. If the theory seems out of touch with what you do think are the most basic policies, the most moral and ethical just policies, and that's reason to revise the theory. So at all times, be engaged in reflective equilibrium. So why would it not be called pragmatism? Sure, so, so, you, so uh, reflective okay. equilibrium is certainly compatible with pragmatism, but they're just uh, different approaches. So they're just separate camps, just separate okay. concepts, but they're certainly compatible with one another. But they're not the same. They're not the same. You could be engaged in reflective equilibrium and not be a full-hearted pragmatist. You could be committed to uh, some conception of what justice entails that's not thoroughly pragmatist, but still be open to your baseline uh, moral judgments. Mm-hmm. Very similar, though, so that's an astute observation. So Rawls says that we want to satisfy four different criteria when looking for the just basic institutions. And that's what the subject of the chapter is. How can we organize society? How can we construct our legislature, our tax policy, our laws, etc., such that they will bring about a just society? And you've read about previously in the book... Rawls' two principles of justice, the first principle, the liberty principle. That principle just states that all citizens should have the most expansive system of basic liberties compatible with a similar system for all. So when he says that he has in mind stuff in the Bill of Rights, basic stuff like freedom of religion, freedom of press, private personal property, that kind of stuff. Second principle of justice, inequalities are just only insofar as they benefit the least well-off, and the equal opportunity principle Offices should be open to competition on an equal level to all. So we want basic institutions that will secure those principles of justice. You need to ask yourself four questions when examining these particular institutions. Are they just, practical, stable, or too demanding? So just, do they satisfy the principles of justice? Practical, can we actually work this out in the real world that really uh, resonate with real citizens? Stable, are these the sorts of policies and institutions that will perpetuate themselves, the sorts of institutions that will uh, bring about adherence from the citizenry or they just reject it and think it's ridiculous? And also, is it going to be too demanding? Are we going to ask things of our officials and of our citizens that they just can't uh, uphold? So the goal here, quote from page 137, the goal is what we would like, of course, Rawls says, are just and effectively designed basic institutions that effectively encourage aims and interests necessary to sustain them. So that just captures the first, first four criteria. Now he's going to examine five different candidate uh, regimes. Laissez-faire capitalism, welfare state capitalism, state socialism with command economy, property-owning democracy, and liberal democratic socialism. The last two, as you read, are compatible with Rawls's principles of justice, but the first three fail in different ways. So first... Free market capitalism, unregulated completely. He thinks that this fails according to the uh, liberty principle in that it only secures formal equality. And what does Rawls mean by that? It only secures formal equality. Well, this is opposed to substantive equality. So maybe everyone has an equal right to run for political office in a free market economy. Everyone has the formal equal right. Amy, you can do so. Gentlemen over here, you can do so. But... 
substantively, maybe Amy has more resources than you guys do. So she's going to have a better shot at actually running for office, whereas a poor disadvantaged person would not. So under free market capitalism, completely unregulated, only secures formal equality. Also, there's no fair value, no fair value of the political liberties along the same lines. Your ability to influence political decisions is going to be dependent upon your wealth, and within free market capitalism, wealth is completely unrestrained, and you can expect people with a whole lot of money and people with just a little bit of money, and therefore their political liberties really aren't as equal as they could be or they should be. And also, there's no equal opportunity. You have the formal ability to compete for any position you'd like to compete for. That's open, fine. But it's not substantive equal opportunity. So some citizens have access to wealth and education. Some citizens do not have access to wealth and education, and therefore they're going to be at an advantage or a disadvantage depending on their background, etc. So free market capitalism fails on those grounds. And we can stop along the way and discuss these things if you like. I thought I'd try to go through this fairly quickly, and then we can come back. I'm sure there'll be lots of things to talk about, but if you'd like to stop me, we can. Welfare state capitalism, that's where you have a free market, but at the same time a guaranteed social minimum where you just directly redistribute wealth to the least well-off, make sure they're taken, up, taken care of to some requisite degree. In that case, under that system, there's no fair value of the political liberties that's not satisfied because even though people are brought up to some requisite minimum, they still can't compete for office. They still can't have as much influence over the political uh, system as those at the top can. And the principle of reciprocity isn't satisfied. Does anybody recall what the principle of reciprocity is? Does anyone recall how it applies to Rawls's second principle of justice, perhaps? That's the second principle of justice, and it states that inequalities in wealth are justified or okay only insofar as the least well-off are benefited. So it's okay for Bill Gates to have millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars and for the Deaton family to gross, say, $40,000 last year, that's fine under Rawls's system, so long as Gates's wealth somehow is contingent upon my betterment. So somehow wealth, Gates gives back to me, whether it's through, I guess it would have to be through direct tax policy, maybe it's educational opportunities for myself or some sort of a subsidy for my kid. That's the principle of reciprocity. The inequalities are okay, but the people at the top owe something to the people at the bottom. And why should they owe something to the people at the bottom? Because society, overall, is a system of cooperation. We're all in this thing together. That's, that's one fact. That's one part of the equation. The other part of the equation is inequalities in wealth are often the result of our natural talents. Things that we're just born with. We're more articulate or more athletic or more handsome or taller or better educated because of the family we're, we're born into. Or some people are less educated based on the family they're born into, or their, uh, their IQ is much lower than, than average, or the, perhaps they're a discriminated uh, minority. And since that's the case, ta-da, the difference principle. That's the argument in its favor in a nutshell. Welfare state capitalism does not satisfy that principle of reciprocity because even though the people at the bottom are benefited to some requisite degree, they're not benefited anymore uh, in reference to how much the people at the top make more and more and more. So the more Bill Gates makes, the more he should help those at the bottom. Welfare state capitalism doesn't guarantee that. So that's the mark against that system. State socialism with command economy, this would be what we typically think of when we think of the Soviet Union where you have a centrally directed economy and it's 
uh, not democratic in many different essential ways. People don't choose their occupations. What's produced is centrally delegated. It just violates, violates basic equal liberties. It doesn't give people enough say in the way their governments ran or what occupation they have or what's produced. So then we have the last, the last two standing, property-owning democracy and liberal de- democratic socialism. Both of these paths, Rawls' criteria, and he thinks that which we choose should just be dependent upon the historical facts of the particular culture in question. So if it were at the United States, he would probably recommend property-owning democracy since we've not been a, a socialist nation. Yes, sir? Oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> just, just a, a, can I get you back again to that welfare state capitalism? Yes, yes. Be. Does a, a progressive tax policy be consistent with that system? Would it be consistent with it? Would, would a welfare state capitalism, could welfare state capitalism have a progressive tax policy? Mm-hmm. Would a progressive tax policy satisfy the reciprocity uh, 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 principle of reciprocity? So that would begin to bring it more in line with a difference principle. That would begin to so, so satisfy So if, if, if we can tax Bill Gates, since you keep mentioning Bill Gates, uh, right. as he or she gets richer, mm-hmm. and that is used in, in, in that system for the... So, so it seems to me that principle of reciprocity, unless you, you're excluding a uh, progressive tax policy in a welfare state capitalism, you could meet that principle of reciprocity in a welfare state capitalism. So sure, but to the extent that what we call it is a, uh, an instance of welfare state capitalism or a property-only democracy will turn essentially on whether or not the difference principle is satisfied. To the extent that the difference principle is satisfied and also the first principle of justice, then we simply change the name and call it property-owning democracy. But Rawls here is defining welfare state capitalism as a system in which you just secure a requisite minimum. Now, perhaps you could tax, have a progressive income tax, but still the threshold minimum doesn't rise, and the amount that those at the top can earn isn't contingent upon the betterment of those at the bottom. Unless you satisfy that condition, it's still going to be welfare state capitalism or some, some variant thereof and not a true property-owning democracy. So that's, that's the contrast. But a very good question. Other questions? So, yeah, both property-owning democracy and liberal democratic socialism satisfy uh, the two principles of justice. Note that the first principle of justice does guarantee private personal property, but it does not guarantee private ownership of the means of production. Anyone know what the means of production are? Water, land, utilities. Yeah, just, just the stuff you need to, uh, to produce things, to make widgets. Contrast that with personal property. What might that be, an instance of personal property? <laughs> a pair of jeans. Yeah, a pair of jeans, your, your toothbrush or something like that, right? So individuals need to be able to purchase goods for themselves as they consume, but they needn't necessarily own the means of production. So that's why this uh, democratic socialism is compatible with Rawls's two principles of justice. But then again, he, he does leave it to particular societies to choose based on their culture and history, etc., which they will actually institute. So notice both in a property-owning democracy and liberal democratic socialism, they facilitate choice of occupation, and both, of course, satisfy the first principle of justice, all the basic liberties. So notice the contrast between welfare state capitalism and property-owning democracy. Welfare state capitalism, here's another uh, difference, sir. It permits a perpetual underclass, so you could have a group of people who are perpetually dependent upon that payment 
with no opportunity to ascend, whereas under a, the regime of a property-owning democracy, the aim is to empower people with the ability to ascend, to give everyone a fair shot at life. That's going to be the main thing we try to satisfy in a Rawlsian regime. We want to satisfy some, some requisite degree, some requisite standard of living, just to give people the ability to compete in the market, the ability to exercise their basic liberties, to enjoy them, but they're all, they always have a real substantive opportunity to ascend. And that's the main contrast. Six ideas of the good and justice is fairness. Does anyone recall the difference between the right and the good? So generally, the right concerns the way you should treat others. Generally, the right concerns ethical oughts, the way you should behave yourself, and within political philosophy, how a state ought to be arranged. And good refers to what benefits individuals. Rawls argues that we should place the right above the good, that is, we should ask ourselves, what do citizens owe one another, what do they owe their state, and what does the state owe their citizens? We should ask that question first, and not ask the question first, what benefits individuals? A good reason to go in that order is that there's so much widespread disagreement about what benefits individuals. And admittedly, there's quite a bit of disagreement about what constitutes the most just state, but Rawls thinks he provides a framework from within which people can pursue a variety of conceptions of the good. So perhaps Julian thinks, this is the one person I know, Julian over here, (laughs) perhaps Julian thinks being a good person is being the best Christian he can possibly be. But perhaps this lady over here thinks being a good person entails uh, volunteering as much time as she can to Knoxville. Maybe this gentleman over here thinks that being a good uh, Republican in the Republican Party, that's what it means to be a good person. Under a Rawlsian regime, all three of you could pursue your conceptions of the good just fine. Rawls is going to empower, empower you with some all-purpose means from which you can pursue your conception of the good. He's going to enable you with education, perhaps with resources, with health care, etc., and then you can pursue those on your own. So Rawls takes time to point out these six ideas of the good and justice and fairness because someone might consider this a little bit out of character. Why, why would he include conceptions of the good? Why should this be a part of his political philosophy? So he just wants to point these out that, yes, there are conceptions of the good within this theory of justice. Here's what they are. First, rationality thinks human beings consciously plan their lives. Maybe all people don't, but perhaps people at their highest do. Perhaps people should. Maybe we're going to assume that about good citizens. Primary goods, these are the all-purpose means that people can use to pursue their conception of the good. So education, uh, maybe running water is one thing, (laughs) access to health care, equal opportunity to compete in the market, etc. Permissible conceptions of the good, these are the comprehensive doctrines that are compatible with justice as fairness. And by comprehensive doctrine, that's that's a a concept that's in contrast with a thin conception of justice. So... What Rawls offers us is a conception of justice that, as I explained just a moment ago, is supposed to enable people to pursue their own conceptions of the good. So it's just supposed to regulate your thoughts on how a state ought to be organized and what citizens owe one another, what they own the state, owe the state, etc. That's just a very small component of your obligations as a human being. Once that's satisfied, you're free to do whatever you want within the confines of acceptable conceptions of justice or conception acceptable, comprehensive doctrines, and those would be the comprehensive doctrines that don't directly conflict with the principles of justice. And we'll get to those just a little bit later, but previewing that. The political virtues, here you're going to spell out the ideal citizen, what sorts of characteristics they could have, and we can talk about that in a minute when I get done with this. 
political good of a, of a well-ordered society, that's next week. Be sure to come back next week. Professor Reedy will be here, and he's a fantastic lecturer, and he is the Rawls man. He is one of the best Rawls experts, one of the, the most renowned Rawls experts in the world, and I'm merely his understudy. He is the master, so definitely come back next week. I won't steal any of his thunder. And then last, the idea of the good of a well-ordered society as a union of unions. This is just the good of organizational cooperation, if you think there's any good in that. Civic humanism versus classical republicanism. Civic humanism is the, the concept or the, the notion that human beings are at their best when they're engaged in politics. Classical republicanism is the notion that humans and citizens should be engaged in politics because it benefits the polity, because it keeps tyrants in check, and because it just makes the society politically healthy. The first is incompatible with justice as fairness because it's a substantive conception of the good. It says human beings are at their best when they're engaged in politics. And then perhaps that, that conception articulates particular virtues. All right, well, you should be efficient, and you should be hardworking, and you should be honest because these are the virtues a good, citizens need, a good citizen needs, and being a good citizen is the best thing a human being can do. We have to reject that because it's substantive. On the other hand, classic republicanism simply says that those different virtues are beneficial insofar as they create the ideal citizen, they can benefit the state, do what they need to to bring about justice. And in that case, perhaps we have the same virtues articulated. Perhaps you need to be hardworking and honest and loyal to your country, etc. That's acceptable. So you could argue for the exact same justice with just a different grounding. In one case, if we say the grounding is intrinsically valuable, we have to reject that. If we argue in the other case that it's simply instrumentally valuable, we can accept that. Intrinsic just means in and of itself, whereas instrumental means used for some other end. And we reject the intrinsic approach because it articulates a conception of the good, and the state needs to be neutral in reference to that. Constitutional versus procedural democracy. So under procedural democracy, everything is up to popular vote. So for example, if the citizens of Tennessee would like to enslave all blue-eyed males. The state of Tennessee could do that, and I'd be enslaved tomorrow. Under a constitutional democratic regime, you have basic rights and liberties that are explicitly articulated that put limits on what people can do to one another and what the state can do to its citizens. So under that, you could not enslave me. I have different basic liberties that would prevent that arbitrary enslavement. And if it's just not obvious why that would be preferable, Rawls thinks that it's actually educationally useful and that under that, that sort of a system with a constitutional democracy, citizens will be inculcated with a sense of their equality and of the, the inherent moral value of their fellow citizens, and this will be beneficial for the perpetual, perpetuation of the state. The fair value of the equal political liberties. Here's, here's the complaint. Rawls is trying to answer this particular charge. The charge is that equal polit- political liberties are only formal, and I discussed that earlier, and that you can run for office, but if you don't have enough cash, you can't really compete. Rawls' solution would perhaps disagree heartily with the recent Supreme Court ruling. We can discuss that here in a moment, but here's a quote from page 149. Reforms that, to that end, are likely to involve such things as the public funding of elections and restrictions on campaign contributions, the assurance of a more even access to public media and certain regulations of freedom of speech, and of the press, but not restrictions affecting the content of speech. Definitely something to talk about. 
denial of the fair value of other non-political basic liberties. So he thinks we should secure the fair value of the political liberties, but not the other basic liberties, and here's why. If it would require mandating equal income, if we had perhaps an enforced strict egalitarianism where no matter what you produce, no matter what you contribute to society, everyone makes $35,000 a year because that's the only way to ensure everyone is substantively equal and they can really enjoy life to the fullest in an equal way. If that were a requirement, it would just be irrational, Rawls argues, because it would take away the incentive to work harder and we can all benefit more if we allow inequalities. He also thinks that it's superfluous, and that's because the difference principle, the principle that the original position agents behind the veil of ignorance would, would uh, choose, does not require equality of income, does not require equality of wealth, but only the difference principle, or only that inequalities are just insofar as they benefit the least well-off. That's all you have to satisfy. And he also argues that if we were to provide for equality when it comes to a person's ability to satisfy their conception of the good, this would lead to disproportionate allocation of wealth based on criteria that would very likely piss people off. And he uses the example of the religious pilgrim. Does anyone recall that, that example? Maybe that's not the language you use. But. So that maybe there's a person that their religion requires that they travel to some distant land, and it costs quite a, a, a sack of money to travel to this distant land. And if we're going to try to satisfy everyone's equality based on their ability to satisfy their conception of the good, we would have to give this person thousands of dollars and we would have to subsidize this person's trip based on the taxation of others and that would very likely lead to social strife. You're not going to be very happy if you're paying for someone else's trip to Mecca, for example. A lot of people wouldn't be very happy with that. So instead, we provide a general equal opportunity and a general index of basic primary goods and allow people to carry them out within... uh, based on their own decisions. Yes, sir? When you said religious pilgrim example, and you mentioned strife, is it implicit that only a certain part of the population are pilgrims? Yeah, I guess so, because I guess if everyone were a religious pilgrim and everyone had the exact same amount of wealth demands to satisfy their conception of the good, there wouldn't be any real reason to be upset, right? I but, don't know. Would there? Well, I guess some people are earning enough where they can go on their own. They don't need to be subsidized. That's what I was... Yeah, yeah, probably so. Some people could do that. But I would also assume that in any society, you're going to have a plurality of conceptions of the good. You have a plurality of religions, and I wouldn't expect a homogenous society where everyone has to satisfy the same pilgrimage with the exact same uh, costs. So I think, I think Rawls is correct that it would uh, encourage disharmony. It would, would upset some people, I think. Yeah, and I think it's a reasonable assumption because it would be very difficult to find a society anywhere where it's completely homogenous and everyone has the exact same religion with the exact same requirements, etc. I mean, even in the Middle East where people really do need to go to Mecca, there are still Jewish and Christian communities within those, those areas. And that's just an example with Mecca. That's, that seems to be the most expensive religious requirement. There could be other examples if anyone knows of one, but that's just a good one. But good question. All right, top of page three, right? So some conceptions of the good will inevitably be discouraged. Rawls here is trying to head off the objection that justice is fairness is prejudice against certain ways of life. And the two ways in which certain conceptions of the good can be discouraged, one, they can directly conflict with the principles of justice. So perhaps your conception of the, the good requires the subjugation of women or some minority. Not compatible with the two principles of justice. So yeah, that way of life is definitely going to be encouraged, discouraged, though perhaps it will generate some voluntary 
adherence, perhaps. And also when they fail to gain voluntary adherence. So maybe you have the exact same system where it requires subjugation of women and minorities, and the only way to bring that about is through the coercive apparatus of the state. But we can't allow the state to be used for that purpose. So that particular conception of the good is going to be discouraged. But it's not a big deal, says Rawls, no problem. Isaiah Berlin agrees that there's no social world without loss. That means you can't have any society without discouraging certain ways of life. So I I can't imagine any conception of justice, any political system that didn't discourage, at the very least discourage, certain ways of life. I mean, agrarian ways of living out, out in the country. Simply if you have organization and markets, it's going to perhaps discourage that. So there will always be some sort of discouragement. In the same section, Rawls gives us some suggestions on how we could handle self-removed groups. So, for example, if you had a religious sect that demanded that their children not go to public schools, Rawls thinks that we should only require they teach their kids about their constitutional rights, uh, to also teach them that they have the right to change their religion, that it's not illegal to do so, etc. We don't have to teach these children to be completely independent or completely autonomous, but just give them access to their constitutional rights. He thinks that much is required to treat them with dignity, with the respect they deserve as citizens within a Rawlsian regime. Whether or not they choose to exercise those liberties once they become full adults is another matter, but they should at least be empowered with that knowledge. Yes, sir? I agree with this, but it's a bit unrealistic, don't you think? Okay, what, what do you think is unrealistic? Well, I've, I've, watched, I've watched this happen in uh, a rural agrarian communities outside of Akron, Cleveland, with the Amish, where this, this exact thing, constitutional rights, liberty of the conscious, blah, 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 but you need individuality and autonomy. If you try that, do that any place where there are others who accept the latter and are being taught that, you automatically teach that to these people. I, I don't disagree with this. Again, uh, I'm surprised that Rawls, who is adamantly opposed to things that are unreasonable, would ever say a thing like that because I don't think that would work out. Okay, so, you're, you're, so your problem is with the statement that you can educate these children about their constitutional rights. You can tell them it's not against the law to reject the religion, but you don't think that you can tell them that at the same time, not teach them to be independent and autonomous. I watched it not happen. Okay, so you think it's inevitable that if you teach them about their constitutional rights, they're inevitably going to become independent and autonomous. I watched it happen. Okay, so perhaps, okay, so, so perhaps this is a case where, again, our justification is based on we're only going to teach you your constitutional rights. We're only going to teach you that you have the liberty of conscience. You don't have to adhere to this. You can change your mind. It's your choice. But we're not going to give them positive education about you should be independent, you should be autonomous. Here's how to engage in higher-order uh, reflection. Here, here's how to uh, choose your life plans. Here's how others have rejected their, their ways of life, etc. So maybe it would be perhaps a common... A little unrealistic. Okay. It may be a common, if not inevitable, byproduct, but perhaps, perhaps if we justified it in a different way, it would be okay. But, but excellent point. Yes, sir. One of the problems uh, I find uh, with varying principles enunciated by anyone is the intersection of the different principles. So with respect to the people who choose to self-remove and their children, what would Rawls say about parents who did not want their children to be inoculated, for example? If, if there were a plague and if it were the case that failure to inoculate could infect the rest of the population, 
how would Rawls reconcile his different principles there with pragmatism, for example, with the, with the need to, or, or the various ones that you've enunciated here? Oh, that's a, that's a very good question. So you have the specific question, if there were a plague and parents denied the inoculation of their children, even on religious grounds, make it, make it that difficult, which value would win out? How, how would he decide that case? Because you want to respect the citizens' conception of the good. You want to respect them uh, based on whatever the religion is, but at the same time you would emphasize their obligations to the rest of us as members of a society, which is just is a big system of cooperation for mutual advantage. I think in that case, based on the extent of the risk to others, that would be the ter- determining feature. Uh, to the extent that it would put others at undue risk, that value would override respect for their religious autonomy. And this is the case any time you have any values. Inevitably, they're going to conflict. Whenever you have any scheme of basic rights, you're going to have them bump up against one another. So the freedom of, of speech versus uh, concerns about public safety. That's why you can't scream fire, fire in a, a crowded theater. So you put restrictions on the freedom of speech, and that's fine because you need to do so to make them compatible with our other, other values and our other liberties. In this case as well, perhaps we maintain great respect for this family, for the religion, or for the, the entire culture, but at the same time, if they pose undue risk to the rest of the population, then perhaps that's something the state can justly coerce them into doing. So I'm not sure, Rawls would probably, probably be reluctant to ask, answer that question. He would probably say this is something for the judiciary or for the legislature to answer directly or something like that. Oh, yes, sir. Um, Go ahead. No, I'm sorry. I, with all due respect to that gentleman, what he said about the Amish, I mean, from what I understand, when they turn or they reach adulthood, they're able to go out into the world and decide if, they, if the Amish life is right for them. And I, isn't that enough? Please understand, I didn't disagree with this. I'm just saying it's rather unrealistic. In, in uh, northeastern Ohio, uh, they have a, it's at about 16, 17, I think, one year. Um, it, it can be very, very destructive to their communities. I think it's built into the, to the society in which they live that they're under enormous pressure, those, those children and those communities. I don't disagree with this at all, though. Right, so I think his main contention was that if you teach them about their constitutional rights and if you teach them that they have liberty of consciousness, conscience and it's not against the law to change your religion or to give it up altogether, if you teach them that, inevitably they're going to become autonomous and more individual, et cetera. So we can't avoid that. I think there's a, there's a, a better example maybe even that's, that's more concrete, and that is an example of uh, how do you teach sex education or how do you teach HIV um, or, or, or protection from HIV without without teaching libertarian sex. I mean, that, that hits, I think, everybody. And that seems to be, that's one issue for which that real struggle comes right to the fore. And um, I I can see Rawls' point. I would agree with it as well. On the other hand, I can see how there's a real disagreement amongst people over which one of those things is good. Is it best not to have HIV? Is it best to wait till, you know, uh, abstinence only? Is it better to have safe sex? All of these kinds of issues would be issues that would, I would think would revolve around that particular principle. Yeah, I don't want to pretend to know what to know what answer Rawls would give to these questions. In fact, I think he would dodge the question altogether and say that's that's something for situated societies to figure out. I'm I'm a mere political philosopher. This is more abstract. You guys are in the concrete now. Take these values and balance them the best, the best you can. I've been thinking about this for a while, and and um, I'm not an economist or a philosopher, but 
I, I, can, I think I can understand what Rawls is getting at, but I think you have to put yourself in an office and you have to isolate yourself <laughs> from the real world. And then you can think about these things. Uh, like Kant, you can think about these things in, a, in an abstract, theoretical way. But in order to... They're sort of ideal thinking. They're thinking about ideal models and ideally about how things should go. But this, you know, first conception, what, first conception of the good, rationality. I've been sitting here thinking about that. You know, the world is not rational. People don't behave rationally. So what are we supposed to do? Get people to think rationally? Is that... No, I, but I, and I think Rawls' answer to that, no, that doesn't concern him. He's just in his office thinking and writing about these things, about ideal things. But it, when you get into the real world... We have systems that suggest that people are rational and behave rationally. I mean, that's a lot of, a lot of our society is based on the notion that people are rational and they'll make rational decisions. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying well, we have systems. It, does every person plan every aspect of their life and try to maximize their utility or maximize their goals or achieve them? No. People fall into jobs. Accident happens. Oftentimes people just float from one thing to the next. But I don't think that undermines the, just the general point he was trying to make here. So uh, I think his only point there was that rationality, the fact that humans consciously plan their lives, whether or not that's actually true in every case, that's something that a good liberal or a good Rawlsian would think is beneficial. That's, he would think that it's something that uh, we should extol or perhaps encourage. But to the extent that people don't do that, uh, I don't think it's going to be to such a degree that that undermines his entire system or anything. But that, surely Rawls did not think Every person plans every decision consciously, et cetera. Don't don't mistake him for saying that. What what is it? What 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 is incentive based um, policy? Is that is that based on the idea that people are rational because they respond to incentives? Sure, sure. Most of economics is based on the assumption that persons are rational. This particular conception of rationality, this gentleman has a good point because on the uh, second page of the handout, I have the six ideas of the good and justice is fairness, and I've, I just have a rationality there, and I have it defined as humans consciously plan their lives. So, sure, if you just take, take that particular phrase out of context, I would disagree with that as well. Do all human beings always plan every aspect of their lives? Not at all. And Rawls doesn't think that's the case either. I think he would just say that it's beneficial when people do that. I think he would say that the vast majority of people who are normal functioning adults have the ability to do so, and perhaps that's something the state should encourage, respect, etc. And, and to the extent that they don't, I don't think that kills his whole theory. It's just a, a minor side point. Uh, going back to the example of uh, a group that says they, don't, they refuse to be inoculated, would it fit with Rawls' principles to say, all right, we respect your, your right not to be inoculated, but understand that you will be quarantined? And people close to you are more, much more likely to be quarantined. So understand that by doing that, you're choosing to be quarantined and you're choosing to quarantine those near you. Would that work? Maybe so. So, I, again, I would just emphasize that the principles of justice are meant to be applied to the basic institutions of society. And here we're talking about, we'll see in a moment, the family counts, the way the branches of the government are arranged, that, that counts. The way the economy is regulated, all, all of those laws, that stuff counts. 
But when it comes to particular laws, those in the, in the execution of particular laws and the handling of particular uh, emergencies, those should be handled on the ground. Now, now you're going to have these, these background principles of justice and all the institutions within which you're working in mind, but can I give you a definitive answer about how that would apply directly to a particular case? No. Just off the cuff, yeah, that sounds like that would be compatible. You'd have any number of uh, ways you could deal with such a system. Sure, don't, don't immunize your kids, but you have to be quarantined. Or we're going to come in and make you actually do it because the value of public safety outweighs the value of respecting your religion. I think either one of those would be compatible based on the danger, et cetera. And perhaps we should just leave it to legislators to actually decide that or to the executive branch decide that. Uh, let me ask, uh, since the question of intersection was, was brought up, uh, bring an, an example and ask you whether you what, what, would you, what is your guess would be where Rawls would stand on? And that is the question that two democratic societies, the United States and France, are dealing with it differently. And that is the uh, right of families sending, having their children, let's in this case Muslims, or show uh, outward signs of religion, whether it's a cross or a... Uh, as headscarf, and the right of state not to allow that inside the school uh, or educational institutions. Now, French have laws against display of religious symbols in schools, whereas we here think of that as a right. Now, I don't know whether that's looked as, as a right of a family to do that, to have one's child be able to do that, versus the, uh, the right of the state for cultural or other reasons to have a school be free of uh, religious symbols. So, so maybe Rawls would be fine with the, the, with the state going either way, depending on the facts on the ground. So in Turkey, I understand, I just understand this because I've been to several of the Turkish uh, cultural <laughs> center meetings. They, they put on fabulous dinners, go if you ever have the opportunity. In Turkey, I under, understand that the state is secular and they are militantly secular because there are religious communities within Turkey that would love to take over the power of the state. And if the state doesn't keep them in check, that's going to occur. In France, I saw on the news, I don't know, the past year or so, there has been strife amongst the different religious communities in France. So perhaps there, there's a a reason to discourage that in schools because it would undermine the ability of the the teachers to educate. If students are angry at one another, they're arguing about their religion, etc. Say in Tennessee, in the United States... Uh, in Knoxville, would it be a big deal if a kid wore a cross to class or a hijab or the Star of David? I wouldn't think so. I think that would be just fine. So I, I don't. So again, I think it would turn on the facts on the ground. If it was going to be a real problem in Tennessee, I think that would give particular administrators good reason to put a clamp on that. Uh, if not, why not allow it? So I think both of those answers would be permissible based on the facts on the ground. I don't, I don't mean to be sidestepping the question like that. I'm just trying to be true to Rawls' project, and I think it would just, just, just turn on the facts on the ground. Some of, his, some of the things he discusses, he does give us particular answers to, which we'll get to in just a moment with the gay marriage stuff and also with the uh, he- health care stuff. Oh, and leisure, leisure, leisure time as well. Was there another question? No? All right. All right, on to head taxes. This is a, uh, a suggestion that we impose a lump some tax on people that are naturally talented and then use that to pay for all the social programs because those of you with these innate talents of athleticism and intelligence and charisma, etc., you guys can compete better in the market, and that's just not fair to the rest of us, so we should tax tax you directly. But Rawls says we shouldn't do this, we can't do this because we can't accurately measure innate talent. 
it's, it's difficult, if not impossible, to distinguish between what talents you were born with, what, uh, what abilities you had when you came out of the womb, or contrast that with the abilities you were given with which you have worked. It's, it's difficult, if not impossible, to tell whether my position today as Matt the philosophy guy is due in most part to natural talents I had, or in most part due to initiative. And since that's the case, it would be unfair and unrealistic to try to tax people based on how well they're doing in the world because we don't want to punish those who show initiative, so it's just unrealistic to be able to do that. It would also violate the priority of liberty. It would force the endowed to choose more lucrative professions, work longer to pay the larger tax. So that wouldn't be very nice either, would it? The economic institutions of a property-owning democracy. Now here, Rawls explains the difference between the just savings principle and the difference principle. The difference principle, again, that's the second principle of justice. Bill Gates versus the poor person. It's okay to be uber-rich so long as you're somehow given back to those at the bottom. The difference principle holds within generations, but the principle of just savings holds between generations. And the principle of just savings is that it, it concerns what we should give to the future generations and what past generations owe to us. So is it okay to spend 100% or sometimes 300 400% of the federal budget or the state budget to go exceedingly into debt, or do we need to save some money for future generations? And Rawls says that, of course, we should put some money aside for future generations, and the question that we should ask ourselves is, what percentage of the GDP could we endorse all past generations having saved? What percentage of the GDP would we have liked them to have saved, realistically? And whatever percentage that is, that's the percentage we should set aside to ensure future generations uh, inherit a just society that's able to sustain itself. Bequest and inheritance taxes. So Rawls suggests just some different suggestions for tax policy on inheritance and gifts. He says that we could tax or perhaps should tax the recipient and not the person that's actually giving it. I guess, in effect, you're still taking the same amount of money, but maybe there's some... Uh, nuanced difference there. It says we should or we can tax progressively. And notice that all these policies, all these suggestions are just uh, ideas to bring us in line with the difference principle and the different the principles of justice. And we can also tax and we should tax, especially inheritance, to preclude a landed aristocracy. Now that's a term I've thrown in there just for some rhetorical force. That's to secure citizens' fair uh, political value or fair value of their political liberties. If rich families continue to be rich and just give their money to their rich kids and poor, poor family, families continue to be poor and die and give nothing to their kids, then we're going to have a stratified population where there is uh, little ascendancy, little social mobility. Now, there will be some cases where it occurs. Of course, people at the bottom can't work their way up. People at the top can fall from grace. But it's not going to be nearly as often as it should be in a well-ordered society under a, truly, a true property-owning democracy. You need to get rid of that entrenched rich, entrenched poor with certain tax policies. And I put this in the handout, and Rawls didn't mention it explicitly, but he's mentioned elsewhere an inheritance tax, which would be pejoratively called a death tax, and perhaps you exclude the first $2 million. First $2 million, do whatever you want with it, but, but beyond that, you're taxed at 90% or 95%, something like that. So it gives you the opportunity to give a big, big chunk of the money you have, which actually may be a very small percentage, depending on how much money you have, but a fair amount of money to your kids or to whomever you like, but then the rest of it, or the vast majority of the rest of it, goes to fund social policies and secure the two principles of justice. So those are some suggestions we could talk about in just a minute as well.
And he also says taxes needn't be on income, but also be on consumption, perhaps surprisingly so. The family is a basic institution. The essential role of the family, as far as the state's concerned anyway, is just to reproduce citizens. So it is part of the, the background system, and it plays a very important role. Without families, we don't get new citizens, the state collapses. So we need to nurture that family. The implication, Rawls says, and he says this in a footnote on page 163, he says, gay marriage will be fine so long as it is compatible with orderly social reproduction. So whether or not it is is a question for social scientists to answer. That's a question for people on the ground to actually answer. Can gay couples, and of course gay couples can't actively reproduce, they're going to have to, uh, well, I guess uh, female gay couples could. I'm sure they go to a sperm bank and have a child that way. Male gay couples can, of course, adopt, and to the extent that they can raise children and produce good moral citizens with good virtues like the rest of us or like everyone else, to the extent that they can do that, that's just fine and the state should allow it. And it's somewhat obvious, Rawls thinks, that that's the main question to ask. Now, maybe the answer to that question is no, they can't do that. Maybe the question is yes, but that's a question to examine on the ground and not answer from afar, from the philosopher's armchair. Says that the principles of justice don't apply to internal the internal workings of a family, and he gives us the comparison with the church. He says, for example, that church members are free to leave the church and join another or do whatever they care, but the internal workings of the church needn't be democratic. So you can choose your leaders based on whatever criteria you want, but it's still okay for members to leave. Similarly, with the family, each member of a family has enjoys the same basic rights that the rest of us do as citizens or as future full citizens, but the difference principle doesn't apply to the inner workings of the family. You can carry out your familial role, whatever you think that is, so long as it's voluntary or tied to tradition somewhat or whatever, but at the same time, you are still equal in the eyes of the state. He does say that we should recognize reproductive labor as very important and perhaps uh, recommend some laws to emphasize that importance, and here's a particular provision. He says that during divorce, whatever assets were earned over the course of a pregnancy should be split equally to the extent that the female bared the brunt of rearing the children. So traditionally, that's been the case. Women do bear the brunt of the child, child rearing, and my, my wife is doing that right now while I'm here talking to you. She's at home with my toddler, having a wonderful time, I'm sure. <laughs> Hopefully he's not pitching a fit right now. But to the extent that she is taking care of him, and she has uh, quite well for his short two years on this earth, whatever assets we've acquired over the course of, of his life should be split even, evenly were we to, to divorce in the near future. Because even though I'm the one out doing the philosophy, I'm the one teaching at the different universities, I'm the one bettering my resume, etc., I couldn't do any of that, or not, not to the same extent, if not for her at the house taking care of Justin. So since that's the case, we should have laws that protect women in that regard. Primary goods index here, uh, Rawls is responding to a critique from Sin, and Sin says whatever index we use to judge how much uh, of a primary good an individual uh, enjoys, which would be their wealth or their access to leisure time or to health care, whatever, however we judge that, Sin says that it's going to be too inflexible to accurately measure individuals because individuals have different talents and different needs so we can't just say well fine you've got a hundred bucks he's got a hundred bucks you both have the same ability to pursue your, your conception of the good maybe you can do a lot more with a hundred dollars than he can but Rawls replies that 
we're relevantly equal enough. We all possess the two moral powers, and those are the, that's the power to uh, develop, act on, and revise a conception of the good, and the power to develop, act on, and revise a conception of justice. That's equal. We're all given access to education so that we can carry out our conceptions of the good, and we're all cooperative members of society over a complete life, so we're relevantly equal in those different senses, even though we can't come down and make very precise judgments about how well you can use that 100 bucks or he could use that 100 bucks. You're relevantly equal. What about differences in medical needs? Rawls says we can justify restorative care. That's care where a person is a productive member of society, but they have an accident. They can have some procedures done and return to productive uh, cooperation. We can justify that sort of emergency care by reference to the equal opportunity clause in the second principle of justice, where every person is to have an equal opportunity to to, uh, attain office, which includes just jobs in the private sector. And we can justify basic care for all on grounds that health is necessary to enjoy the liberties in the first principle of justice. Rawls says elsewhere that's that's pretty obvious. He he didn't mention this too much in his first work, A Theory of Justice, but he wrote later that, hey, I thought that was just obvious. Of course people have a a right to some basic degree of health care because without health you can't enjoy any of your liberties. Without health you can't compete in the market. And if individuals are equal, you need to be able to at least enjoy your liberties. If you're laid up with diabetes, you can't afford to take care of yourself, you certainly can't exercise your freedom of of speech, not publicly anyway. You can't run for office if you're laid up like that. But he says we can't spend too much on health care. We have other needs to tend to, and this is just a fact about trying to balance different values. And there's a good quote at the bottom of page 173 and the top of page 174 that just illustrates the different values we're always attempting to balance. It says, for example, an active and productive workforce must be sustained. Children must be raised and properly educated. Part of the annual product must be invested in real capital, and another part counted as depreciation. And provision must be made for those who are retired, not to mention the requirements of national defense and a just foreign policy in a world of nation states. The representatives of citizens who view these claims from the point of view of the legislative stage must track a balance between them in allocating society's resources. So those are just all the different goals, values, needs of a state, of a people. You have to balance all those at the same time. So to the extent that health care would preclude satisfying something else, you have to minimize it, cut the cost. Same with national defense, same with all that stuff. Yes, sir? Where would you practically draw the line? Is that essentially saying that people who are not productive uh, are useless unless they're retired? So a person who's <laughs> not productive, would they be... Well, useless. Uh, yeah. I mean, you can't produce because you, you're physically ill. I mean, what, what does he mean by we can't spend too much? But I realize in reality you have to ration health care to some extent, and, mm-hmm. but, but he's, he seems to be drawing the line at a, at a pretty low threshold. Okay. So uh, from that quote, he's, he's just pointing out that we're going to have to balance all those different desires and needs and values. So I wouldn't infer just from that that he wouldn't want to take care of the retired. And, in well, fact, I think he would want us to think about justice from the perspective of a person who's lived a full life. Now, in the quote, he includes retired. I'm talking about how about someone who is not at that stage yet, but they're, they're really ill. Oh, uh, okay, so a person uh, that can't be restored to full health. W- right. At, at what point do we say, well, they're, they're too sick? Okay, so skip on down to the bottom section of the primary goods right here. Interesting note, severely handicapped or owed compassion but are not included when theorizing about justice. See footnote 59, page 157. Yeah, how about a chronic disease that... That might, that might fall into that camp as well. So handicapped it might be something uh, congenital or it might be something that just happens to you later on. Do theories of justice apply to those persons? Well, for instance, Theori- 20% of our health bill now goes for diabetes. Should we stop treating diabetes? 
I'm not sure. What do you think? I mean, is that that's something that when we treat diabetes, we can restore a person to their productive capacity, right? So you're diabetic. We'll give you whatever it is you need. And well, now you can go back out and, and produce. If, and if they refuse to lose weight, actually, we can't. What happens in a circumstance when people are actively engaged in creating the health problems that they're suffering from? All right, so that, that's a, a very good question. I've actually wrote about that a little bit informally, and I've uh, discussed it with the master you'll meet next week, Professor Reedy. I, I initially, and this isn't Raw speaking, this is Matt speaking, so I, I initially argued that to the extent that a person is responsible for their health, uh, health condition, to the extent that they have knowingly smoked and overeaten, et cetera, to the extent they're responsible for their condition, that they're responsible for their health costs. The rest of us shouldn't bear that brunt. I've argued that based on the, the broader political principle that we want people to be responsible for their choices but not subject to circumstance. So if I have an accident that's through no fault of my own or I fall ill to cancer, even though I've been very cautious and been very healthy, then perhaps broader society does owe something to me to help me because I didn't bring this upon myself. It was just an accident. I should be taken care of. But to the extent that I've overeaten and smoked, etc., hey, an educated person in the U.S. should know smoking and overeating is going to lead to poor health, so I should bear the brunt of that. I pitched that idea to Professor Reedy you'll see next week, and he argued that many times, if not most of the time, our choices aren't as conscious and intentional as I was assuming. So whether or not I overeat may be a function of my culture. It may not, may not be such a reflective decision. Whether or not I smoke might be a decision that I, I made when I was a minor. I've read anyway that the vast majority of smokers begin smoking before it's legal to do so and before they're fully autonomous and fully uh, accountable for the decisions. And once you become addicted, now you're rational, very difficult to quit. So since that's the case, perhaps we can't place the burden on individuals as directly as I initially wanted to because perhaps it isn't a function of simply their choice but from a function of other features. Yes, but practically, that's already beginning to happen. If you look at insurance policies sold to people who have not had accidents, some people with certain who smoke can't get jobs in certain institutions, some people who are overweight can't get certain uh, jobs, people who have certain kinds of health histories have a cheaper kind of insurance. Practically, that's already beginning to happen in our culture. Most health economists that I read say we can only look for more and more of it. Now, at what point... What you just said has to be taken into consideration. I don't know. Okay. Yeah, I, I think those. I think that's a good response. I mean, I, I thought initially the idea was good. I pursued it, but then I. <laughs> you bring that up next week. Say, hey, Matt came out of here and he, he said you didn't like it. You didn't like his argument. Justify to us why it wasn't good. I guess I'm kind of confused a little bit right. in the sense that before you were saying that we can't tax people with innate abilities because we can't determine or distinguish between what's natural versus what's initiative. Yeah. And so what we're talking about now seems to be like the exact opposite. So in the sense of like, so natural talents versus, um, um, so it seemed like you were saying also your response was that, well, look, we can't determine what's kind of environmental factors versus like just someone's uh, own initiative to do certain things. Mm-hmm. And yet, so it seems like, I think it seems like it's, we're more critical of the flip side than we are of saying taxing people who have innate abilities, like who are great basketball players, because we can't distinguish if it's initiative or environmental factors. So, I mean, just to be kind of, just to stay consistent, 
Why would that not also be the case for this particular kind of question? It would be. That's the argument the radio offers. He says that we can't tell to what extent an individual chooses to become a smoker or to what extent they choose to overeat or just be unhealthy or whatever. It might just be a sociological effect. It's not an individual making the decision. We typically think just on a basic moral level that we're only responsible for our conscious choices. So if I intentionally ram my car into one of you as I'm leaving this evening, and I mean to, then I'll be more morally and more legally, legally liable for harm done to you than if I accidentally cause the exact same harm because it's slippery outside, because I was on a sheet of ice. So, uh, so if I intentionally go out to become the best basketball player I can be, why not get taxed for that since, or be held responsible for that since I purposely set out to do that? Well, that's something we, we certainly want to uh, reward, not, not tax a person simply because they're... But we're holding them responsible. That's all I'm, I'm wondering about. Oh, so, so, so responsibility brings both benefits and punishment sometimes. Right. So you hold me responsible for doing, uh, committing a heinous crime, but also laud me for doing something beneficial. So if I went out and played really good basketball and that brought some people some joy, you would want to reward me for that. You wouldn't want to reward me if I was just a naturally good basketball player. At least you wouldn't want to reward me to as great of an extent. So we want to hold people accountable for their choices, their decisions, and accountability runs both ways, both in punishment and in reward. So we want to praise LeBron to the extent that LeBron chose to become a good basketball player, and he practiced and practiced and practiced. And we want to say, well, whatever, LeBron, you're fancy to watch, but you don't deserve that much credit to the extent that it was all natural. Same thing with me. To the extent that I've worked hard to become a philosopher, you want to look upon that with praise, give me lots of money, and you should do that. But to the extent that I was just naturally intelligent and just, and just fell into this, then you shouldn't praise me that much. So, but how can, you, how can you know how much of LeBron's success is due to innate talent and how much of it is due to conscious decision? The same thing with me, the same thing with a person with cancer, or the person that's unhealthy or very healthy. I would imagine that behind the veil of ignorance, I would say, well, look, I don't know if I'm going to be completely handicapped right. in, the, in, 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 the, in the world. Sure. So why would I not want to make some kind of... Okay, good, good question. So Rawls says that all of our theorizing about justice has to deal just with uh, co-op, cooperating, productive members of society. He just thinks that, that those are the people that get in the club. Those are the people that are behind the veil discussing this at all because that's what society is. It's just a, a big organization. We're all working together. And if you're not part of that, that working, if you're not cooperating, producing in society, you're just not in the club. So if you're severely handicapped, we owe it to you as a matter of compassion, as a matter of basic ethics to somehow subsidize you or care for you. But it's not a matter of justice. The extent to which we care for you isn't contingent upon the difference principle. That, that means that Bill Gates's wealth isn't contingent upon how well the person at the bottom is taken care of. And Ronald Dworkin actually addressed this problem. He's another political philosopher. He was one of Rawls's contemporaries, and he's still around, I think. He argued that to the extent that we did that, it would just drain us to an unacceptable, unacceptable degree. So to the extent that the difference principle applied to the severely handicapped, there's no way that with all of Bill Gates's money, he could bring all of the severely handicapped people up to a requisite degree of living. So if we were to impose that standard, the people at the top, the people enjoying the best in life, wouldn't enjoy it very much at all. They would be working 100 hours a week and taking home not much at all just to keep the people with severe handicaps to some strange threshold level. Now, they can't enjoy it like the rest of us can, but we're going to do the best we can to make them comfortable. comfortable. So Dworkin actually suggests that Behind, and this isn't Rawls, this is Dworkin. He suggests that behind the veil of ignorance, if you place people behind the veil that don't know if they're handicapped or not, that they would 
uh, vote for an insurance scheme that they would agree to set aside a third of their income or a third of the GDP to take care of those sorts of people, that they would be willing to set that aside. And therefore, here in the instantiated real world, that's the amount of money we should use to take care of those people. It's not Rawls, it's Dworkin, but if you have those sorts of intuitions, perhaps you would agree more with Dworkin. He's, he's also he's in the same thread as Rawls, he's just a slight variant. Yes, sir. On this uh, interesting note, uh, I've thought a lot about compassion, and I try to be compassionate. But how the devil does one relate rationality with that? Uh, I think that, for me, the act of compassion has little to do with rationality. All right, sir, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't see the, the focus of your point. Uh, the, well, the... it seems like is not one of the six ideas of the good rationality. Humans consciously plan their lives. Sure. But we're, we're encouraged to be compassionate. Sure, sure. I can consciously Is that plan. a rational? Is being compassionate rational then? Well, and I'm saying in my experience they're not. Okay, so you can define rationality in several different ways. You can say a person is rational insofar as they can engage in higher order reason. You can say a person is rational insofar as they just look out for number one. That's the way economists look at rationality. Or you can say that a person is rational in this particular sense just insofar as an individual consciously plans their life. So I think only the second notion of rationality is incompatible with compassion. The first notion that you engage in higher order reason, I think to the, to the extent that you're reflective, you'll care more about your fellow human beings. You'll realize that you have much in common with them and will be more willing to give of yourself to help them. On the third conception, to the extent that you rationally plan your life, I assume that you would have other people involved in your life plans, if not just your immediate family, the extension thereof. And to the extent that you help your family, I found any way that you become more compassionate towards others. Only on the second notion of rationality, which Rawls doesn't accept, that's the one that says everyone's an egoist just out for number one. Only on that conception of rationality would it rule out compassion. So unless you think that's correct, and Rawls certainly doesn't, and I don't think human beings are necessarily just that way either, uh, that doesn't undermine anything about having compassion for the handicap. On the question of uh, rationality, I had three uh, uh, examples that I wonder how Rawls would treat. How would he treat someone who said, I am rationally examining my life, and it is such dreck <laughs> that I choose to end it. And so uh, I am going to commit suicide as a rational response to my life. And uh, how would Rawls consider that in the intersection of the individual liberty versus the uh, societal obligation uh, or, or all of our obligations to society. Similarly, if someone said, life is so complicated that I want to abandon my responsibility and I rationally choose to be your slave, not sexually, you know, like I'm in bondage to you or I'm infatuated with you, not uh, race-based, just as a rational choice I want to abandon all responsibility for my body, my life, my property, and I surrender it to you. So I am your slave. And the third example is the, the Indian caste system, where uh, from what little I know about that system, everybody essentially, or at least 100 years ago or so, bought in to the concept that if you were an untouchable, 
uh, you were untouchable. I mean, if, if, and if you were such a person, many such people said, well, I'm untouchable. This is my uh, role in life, and uh, I do not object to it. I do not try to get out of it. On, uh, I, I guess maybe I'll come back in a different way, and I won't be untouchable, but while I'm here, I'm untouchable. How would Rawls treat those three examples of would he consider them rational or would he consider them aberrant? Okay, very interesting questions. First, the question of, of whether or not a person would be, should be allowed to kill themselves. So I assume that your question in, in concerns, well, I'll ask you, does it concern policy or does it concern an individual's um, obligations? So are you questioning what should the good citizen do? Should they continue to stay alive for the sake of the community? Or are you asking would policy, should policy allow individuals to kill themselves or perhaps even mandate the physicians or allow physicians to assist patients with suicide? Are you asking the policy question or the individual question? I can answer both, actually. But. Well, I was asking the Rawls question. What, how would Rawls... Neither, okay. <laughs> so how would Rawls concern? How would he, how how would he view Rawls, that? How uh, would Rawls approach which emphasizes the two principles of you know, the, the individual having certain rights and right. the, uh, the obligation to society. So, I mean, in one perspective, if you kill yourself, you're essentially ending your uh, obligation to society. Yeah, just and if everybody killed themselves, there wouldn't be any society. So that would be contrary to the, the, the welfare of society, you might say. Right. So uh, Rawls would say we should answer such questions based on political value. So I, when you first started answering the question, I, I wanted to punt and say that this is a question for a comprehensive doctrine to answer. You should ask a full-blown Kantian or a full-blown Christian. Don't ask a Rawlsian. Don't ask a political philosopher to answer that question. Ask someone about interpersonal ethics and not justice. But then you rephrase it and said, how should a person make this decision in the light of their political obligations and their political ideals? So I think Rawls would say that, sure, we want, we want to protect individual choice. So we're just going to balance some values here. We want to pr- protect individual choice. And to the extent that the person has made a decision that their life really isn't worth living anymore, that would be on the side of the permissibility. To the extent that they owe something to society, say there's a war going on. It's a war of national defense and you're the only person that knows how to fix those fighter jets. And if you don't stay alive, the nation is surely going to lose this war and everyone will be enslaved. To the extent that that's the case, and you owe something to your society, and you really can contribute, and you really are essential, that value is going to push on the other side and say, no, you can't kill yourself. So I think it will come down just to a particular individual if, if you're going to make a decision based on your political obligations and your political values. So your second question concerned the can voluntary I, can slave. Can I ask a question about oh, that yes, like, just real quickly? Because... When uh, Professor Cook was here, the very, the very, the very first evening, one of the things that, stuck, that stood out in my, in, uh, in my head was, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to, please forgive me if I get this, uh, if I get this wrong, but it was like, uh, you can't force an individual to, to take on their talent. You can't force them to, to do the right thing. So in other words, if I'm a doctor and I'm the only person who knows how to save someone, you might want to encourage them, but under Rawlsian theory, you can't force them to do that. So would that be consistent with what this gentleman is saying, that if you decide, I want to take my life, I want to die, I don't want to do this anymore, Rawlsian theory would suggest, 
Well, we think that's a bad idea, but we can't force you to take the good path. We can't force you to take the right path. Now, and I'm, I'm probably butchering that, but that's one of the things that's, that stuck out in my mind. Well, so what is, the, what is the obligation there? That's an excellent clarification, Amy. So I was addressing an individual's personal decision. So they're, they're trying to balance their different political obligations. From their perspective, then they could make a decision either way. They could go fix the fighter jets or kill themselves. But, but, but from the external perspective, Dr. Cook and Amy, Amy is correct, it would in almost all cases, if not in all cases, be unjust for the society to, to force you to do so. Now, you might say that it would always be unjust, but sometimes it would be permissible. Say, if we really don't make you do it, we really are going to be enslaved. And it, in which case, to heck with justice, we're going to make you do it. But yeah, that's a good, a good distinction, Amy. All right, so your, your second question concerned the voluntary slave. So it would be okay for you to sell yourself into slavery. And you can imagine someone doing this. It sounds far-fetched, but say you are... Uh, a parent of nine or ten kids, and maybe you only have a few years to live anyway. And some, and Bill Gates is going to give you ten million dollars to be his personal slave. You know you have a terminal illness; you're going to buy, die anyway, and you can really take care of your kids. You could use the help. Is it okay to do so in a Rawlsian regime? I think Rawls would say no, to the extent that individuals can sell themselves into slavery that undermines the fundamental equality of citizens. So even though that would be your personal decision, we want to respect con- liberty of conscience allow people to choose their occupations, etc. You can't forego all of your political rights. You can't forego your ability to vote, your, your freedom of speech, freedom of conscience, etc., etc., etc. That's just incompatible with liberalism. Well, I, I interjected the or injected the mercantile aspect, but if there was no monetary exchange, if it was just I am overcome with the burdens of the world and I perceive you as... Uh, an ubermensch who can solve all the problems that are ever going to assail me, so uh, you've got me, and uh, you don't have to give me anything. So effectively, could you behave in such a manner? Sure, but would the state respect such a contract? No. So if you entered in such a, such a contract and you say, I, I give up all of my political liberties, all of my rights as a U.S. citizen or whatever sort of a citizen, you enter into such a contract, and at some point in time, you decide you want to exercise those rights. Maybe you voluntarily don't exercise any of them for the rest of your days. Maybe that's fine. But if you ever wanted to exercise them, the purchaser, your master, could not say, look, you entered into this contract. You can't go out and vote. You said you wouldn't. The state would not respect that for the reasons of disarticulation. The, and that's, that's what Rawls would say? I think so. Rawls would say that, that the individual does not have the right to choose slavery. I think so. And the third one was the caste system. Yeah, the caste system. That's an excellent question. It allows me to bring up something that's interesting about Rawls's theory overall. Rawls thinks to buy into his theory, for it to apply, to apply to you at all, to have any purchase whatsoever, and to have any force, any persuasive force or any moral force for that matter, you have to first view yourself as a free equal, as a citizen amongst equals. If you don't have that tradition, if you don't come to the table with those assumptions, his arguments just aren't going to apply. For the Indians, under a caste system that really have internalized this view that there is a strict hierarchy, and you're born into this caste or that caste, and you shouldn't move out of it, and if you're an untouchable, you're at the very bottom, to the extent that that's part of your self-understanding, Rawls's theory just does not apply, and Rawls will say that. Now, I'm not quite as humble as Rawls is. I would argue that individuals across cultures and across time are relevantly similar enough to apply his system of justice to everyone. So we could apply it to India today or to the United States 500 years ago, and we could criticize states in the past or currently based on these principles of justice, whether or not they internalize this sense that they're free equals. 
Because regardless of where you are, if you're a human being, you possess the capacity of rationality. You can make complex decisions. You, have, you share basic needs. You need food, water, relationships. You desire relationships with others. Most people desire to have a family, etc. There are just so many relevant similarities across the board that I think it should apply across the board. But Rawls is more humble. And Rawls would say doesn't really apply to a, an Indian. I think your, your more specific question was, is that individual behaving rationally? And I think that's a, a bit of a confused question. Uh, again, it would turn on which conception of rationality we're talking about whether it's just self-interestedness or choosing a life plan or uh, some other conception. But, but it gave me an opportunity to bring up the stuff about it not applying to Indians. But I think it would, but Rawls doesn't. Would Rawls believe that during divorce you should uh, equally split your assets accrued during your marriage, whether the woman had children or not? To the extent that your success is dependent upon your wife's help, then the assets should be split along those lines. But what Rawls really emphasizes there is the uh, social reproduction of future citizens' child-rearing. So if you didn't have kids, you wouldn't owe as much to them. But I think Rawls would at the same time argue that if your wife does all the laundry, or your husband for that matter, and they take care of all the home stuff while you're out making the money, you are making yourself more marketable, you're gaining all these skills and experience, and you're able to make more money in some new life, whereas the spouse has stayed at the house and helped you do as much and made you much more marketable, and now they're not going to be marketable at all, you would owe them the proportion of your uh, assets based on those criteria. But the real emphasis there is based on uh, child-rearing responsibilities. Did I hear you and Ms. Amy say that uh, if you have a certain talent in society and society needs that talent, needs it very badly, it cannot force you to use that talent in service to society? I did not read that in what Rawls said here. I thought, I thought it would be perfectly acceptable in a Rawlsian political sense to force you to use that talent for the society. Did I hear you two say perhaps you can't? Yeah, it would be impermissible insofar as it would preclude individual liberty. You wouldn't be able to, to no, choose. but he your... doesn't say that at all. Well, well sure, well, sure. A, I don't think so. Let me give you an example. Okay. During uh, the Vietnam War, every graduate, every, every medical school in this country had two options. They could finish their internship and then go into the service. Or if they got into the Berry Plan, they could finish their residency and go into the service. In not one single instance that I know, I was one of them, in not one single instance were they permitted to say, look, I'm beyond draft age. I'm beyond this. I do this. I do that. I had a classmate who had braces on his legs. And after he finished his residency in radiology, he was told, you don't need to walk to read x-rays. And I thought that was very permissible. I still think it's very permissible. And I think you two might be a little... Well, it wasn't I think you're anti-Rawlsian. It's not my point. It's what Professor Cook said. Because I remember there's a young well, lady right here. in that book, he actually... Mm-hmm. He doesn't come out directly and say it, saying it, but society has a right because of, of the political needs of the society, of all the people, in this case, all the soldiers, to have good medical care. They, you will go. Or you can go to jail. Okay, so do you, do you want to rethink that? Uh, oh, so so a couple of points. So so one would be that simply because something occurs in practice doesn't mean it's okay. So maybe the United States did that. I'm sure, I'm sure they did. You're you're, li- you're living proof, and the, the United States did lots of things. So that 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 doesn't seem too terrible or too counterintuitive. But main point there is just because they do something doesn't mean it's justified or okay. Now you you think so so you think in, you think independently that it was in fact okay that it's it's not counterintuitive that it was just fine. And you're questioning 
mine and Amy's earlier exchange that as a, as a general principle, society can't force individuals to use their talents in particular ways. Well, maybe Rawls would say it's okay to constrain options in cases of emergency. And maybe that qualifies as a case of emergency. So it's national necessity. I mean, I alluded earlier that if this gentleman were the only person that could repair those fighter jets and we needed him to defend this, this terrible invader, then maybe it would be okay. But at the same time, I did say maybe we would admit that it was unjust, but make him do it anyway. Hmm. And, and, and that's, and that's what's, what's, what hit my head was that there was a, a young lady here, I can tell you where she was sitting, and she said that same thing. What if I'm the only person? I think, the, uh, I think she said something about I'm the only doctor that could provide care in Haiti or something along those lines. It was some example of that sort, of that nature. Right. And they said, and she said, are you telling me that Rawls would suggest that you can't force me to administer care? Or I think there was another instance of a firefighter or what have you. And, and he said, yes. No, I could be wrong, but, but, I, but that was something that stuck in my head as a very interesting point as to what extent then do you constrain options and say this is what you have to do versus, you know, where, where is that line? But I remember that was part of the discussion of, 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 of part one of the book. Okay, I'll, I'll, point, I'll punt in one way and say email dreedy at utk.edu, ask him, or, or save it for next week. So because, because the specific question you're asking is what would Rawls say about this? I know some roles, but I don't want to answer that for him. Because, I don't know anything. Because so. this does make some sense, yeah, if it's based on national emergency and it's something you really need. But at the same time, I could pump your intuition in the other direction and say, well, you're the only physician that could provide the best care at UT Memphis. So, so, we, so we should take you and make you be the head physician at UT Memphis because they need your care there. The first one, I think, is a nice argument for a bar. I'm the only one, and I'm the only one that can slip this kind of a widget that's a very theoretical thing. What I was telling was a very practical, political, public health issue. It had mm-hmm. to do with the health of 500,000 soldiers. Right. So what, what I'm doing now is I'm taking that general principle. Is it, it's okay to force people to do uh, particular things, to engage in particular occupations in particular places, etc. I'm taking that principle and applying it to another case and, and asking the question, do we want to also em- embrace the principle here? Or do we want to refine the principle and say it's okay to constrain options in cases of national emergency? Maybe that's a more reasonable position than it's okay to force people to do things anytime it's it's uh, socially beneficial. Is this an instance of rational equilibrium? <laughs> Reflective equilibrium. It is. It is, it is indeed. So you, you have a, a baseline moral judgment. This here is okay. Matt has said that you can't force people to do that. Maybe a too stringent uh, standard. This is okay. So... We should reject that, and I've just revised it somewhat. So, and also pointed to Reedy for next week. And I'll tell you just a quick little <laughs> plug here that if you want to re-listen, or if you want to listen to Professor Cook, Professor Cook's presentation, we have it available on podcast. So they'll all be available. Um, I'm not sure where it would fit into the, the theory, but I think in the, the specific example that was raised, you're dealing with a huge social investment in the individual, with the promise of, of future gain to be. Uh, essentially licensed and, and protected from, essentially legally protected from competition, wouldn't that give the state additional... Uh, license, perhaps? Yeah, license to demand. Okay, for, for this case of, it's not quite a national emergency, it was a voluntary war, right. but we really need this, and, and you, know, you, you may have a, a very high status, but for this particular purpose, we have the right, it would be... Uh, just to require you to take care of your fellow soldiers who did not have that principle and were drafted and are be, being injured at a high high rate 
uh, which, which would be a more compelling argument than someone who is fixing air, airplanes, which does take a, a period of training, but nothing like the amount of uh, investment that would be required. Okay, so uh, you're, you're proposing that to the extent that the state has educated this individual and they're there's responsible? A, yeah, there's, a social, there's been a social investment and a promise okay. of a social uh, special benefit Mm-hmm. Yeah. Status and income and want well, medicine used to be fun. I understand it isn't anymore. Yeah, so this would this would continue to bolster the argument in favor of coercing people into doing certain no. things. Now, certainly you wouldn't say you could never coerce them; otherwise, we wouldn't have a draft. I've, I don't recall reading where Rawls has written anything explicitly on the draft, but I would assume that any reasonable conception of justice would make it permissible in extreme cases. But this is a good point that to the extent that your status is the result of. The society well, I, coming I, together I, yeah. to benefit you. Yeah, or access to scarce social resources. Admittedly, yeah. although you competed to get there, uh, it was a privilege. Yep. So all those would be reasons in favor of doing that. So, right. so we can engage in this right now and, and uh, run through that argument and say, yeah, that makes some sense, without saying, Here, here's what Rawls would say. So we don't have to defer to Rawls and everything. We can certainly talk about this on our own. <laughs> Matt, I think my question is about the universality of this theory we're talking about. I keep thinking about the the slavery uh, example. That sounds reasonable in our setting. But what about the woman in Calcutta who's got five children, and she's desperately poor, can't find work, and her children are going to die? It puts it in a little different context to say, well, the state must not allow slavery, so... The state is saying those children or some of them are going to die. So it's kind of different. So what about the universality of, of these principles? So I think the, we, we can maintain the, I mean, again, this is Matt arguing that they should be applied universally. Rawls, again, was much more humble and said, nope, you have to agree that you're a free equal with your other citizens before you even get on board, before it applies at all. But Matt says, well, relatively similar across the board, so it, applies, it should apply to everyone if it works at all. And now Julian's asking, well, what about in Calcutta where someone needs to sell themselves into slavery to keep their kids alive? I think that the, the overall theory would still be universal because if it were effective and in place in, Al- in Calcutta, a, a mother wouldn't have to make such a decision. A mother's kids would be taken care of to some requisite de- degree. So to the extent that she needs to sell herself into slavery to make sure her kids are fed, clothed, ed- educated, whatever. The system is broken down and the system needs to be fixed. That's not reason to grant an exception allow a person to sell themselves into slavery. Would that get into a discussion of basic human rights? So, for example, a basic human right being water, and without access to water, then therefore I'm, I'm forced to have more children because I need help getting water that's five miles down the street and, or down the path. Would that yeah. be similar to that kind of thing, saying that, it, that was, what the, the issue is is that the, is that the, the system's broken down, so the, universi- the universality is, uh, would be then um, basic human rights across the board? Yeah. Yeah, you would, you'd want to satisfy all those, not just part of the system but the entire thing. And to, and to the extent that it's broken down, we should fix it and not grant those sorts of unsavory abse- exceptions. Um, yes. Okay, so I guess I had a question about when you were talking about, you know, limiting... Um, options and I guess I'm just kind of I'm just trying to work out this idea like if we're autonomous rational supposedly autonomous rational beings then why can't we not have and maybe this goes against this constitutional view versus a procedural view but rather if I'm if we're similar enough why can't we discuss it why do I have to be coerced versus saying okay we talked about it it makes sense for me to maybe give up this one freedom in order to have benefit the whole community which, which also benefits me 
as well. So why can we not have a discussion where I'm not coarse, basically, but through rational conversation or discourse, yeah, I, I would we come to agree. I would certainly prefer the rational route, and so too would Rawls. So we were just examining a, an extreme hypothetical case that hopefully would never actually come about. Right, but I'm just wondering, I mean, because it seems like why not have a procedure where, um, versus having a rule, but having, a, 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 having space inside, um, having institutions such that they can discuss with each other yeah, yeah. these particularities when it comes into tension with the, with the, with the principle. Sure, yeah. If it, I, I would think that's certainly preferable. So we should incentivize people rather than force them when we can. So we'll offer members of the military, we'll give, the, 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 give them the incentive that if you join and serve for however many years, we're going to pay for your college education, we're going to pay off your college loans, and we'll, we'll give you a signing bonus, etc. We do that as long as we have enough people to sign up. But when we don't have enough people to sign up and we're fighting a defensive war that's necessary, then we have to draft. So I, I guess I just feel like horses, I mean... A last option, I would agree. It should be a last no, option. I don't even know if it should be a last option. Like, oh, you wouldn't like, want to explore it at all? No, because I feel like coercion seems something, there's something unfair about, there's something innately unfair about coercion. It's certainly terrible. It's certainly something we want to invo- avoid. We want to, we want to respect the individual, but we're all interdependent. Uh, I can't enjoy my status as a, as a citizen without others also cooperating within that system. Uh, Matt in the woods by himself is a pretty unhappy Matt. So if my decisions have a huge bearing on, on others, then maybe it's okay for others to coerce me in extreme circumstances to ensure that my decisions don't harm them in some extreme way. In the cases we were examining earlier, that was the case. We're approaching 8 o'clock. I've got about 15 minutes until 8. Matt, are there some things you'd like to say to wrap this up? The yeah, let me, let me just run through this last page. Any other I questions? Did, did make you the, hand, the fancy okay. handout, and we can just talk about whatever you want. So, yeah, we had the primary goods Sin's criticism, we went through the uh, uh, medical insurance or medical coverage, and Ross thinks that everyone should be guaranteed some basic level. Apparently that's not going to happen in the United States anytime soon. There, there are some reforms. Are any of those bills still alive? Ross, anyway, would think that everyone should be guaranteed some basic minimum, whether or not that's brought about through a public option or through private means. or Just as long as it's secured, Ross would be fine with it, I think. Addressing Marx's critiques, so Rawls heads off some of the, the critiques that Marx made against capitalism. He said the right to private property isn't basic and it's compatible with equality. Marx thought that if you allow people to own private property, they're necessarily going to be unequal in some very serious way, but uh, Rawls thinks, no, that's, that's not necessarily the case. Rawls emphasizes that rights are not merely formal. See the fair value stuff where you ensure that people can actually exercise their rights equally and not simply have them equally in form or in the abstract. It says that the property, property-owning democracy secures positive liberties, not just negative. The difference between negative liberties and positive liberties is that negative liberties simply lay out uh, restrictions on what others can do to you, whereas positive liberties are empowering. So, for example, if I had a negative right to keep and bear arms, that would mean the state could not hinder my ability to go out and purchase a firearm. But if I had a, a positive right to keep and bear arms, that would mean, hey, I can go down to the courthouse and pick up my rifle. They have to provide me with one. And Mark's... Cr- Criticize, he said that negative liberties are useless without resources. And Rawls replies that, hey, we empower people with resources, whenever it's important anyway. And last, Marx complained that the workplace is very uh, domineering and unequal, but Rawls uh, responds that under a property-owning democracy, it wouldn't be so terrible after all. He thinks that just perhaps naturally it would come about that it would be more democratic. And then he throws out the question, should we subsidize worker-managed firms. And he doesn't answer that. He just throws it out. And worker-managed firms will just be any sort of a business where it it doesn't have just a top-down management, but even the janitors have 
real decision-making power when it comes to the aims of the company, how it spends its, its resources, investments, etc. The fact that there aren't very many of those in the United States, that may be an indication that people prefer to get paid more than to have a say in how their workplace is governed, or it may just be an ind- indication that the workers have never had enough power to bring that about. Maybe they're not educated well enough, etc. So the question is, should we subsidize those? And Rawls doesn't answer that. And then just a few brief comments on leisure time. Yes, nice and to the point, succinct. Surfer bums must support themselves, enjoying all of, all of the above, all these uh, different liberties and enjoyments, etc., is contingent upon your social cooperation, your productive assets. And he says it's okay to include leisure time in our examination of the primary goods and looking at your particular enjoyment of the primary goods. If you have a lot of leisure time, that counts in your favor. This guy's got a lot of money but no free time. Maybe you're both equally well off when you take all that into account. Well, I said I'd run through that handout fast, but I finally got through it with about 11 minutes left. But the best part of this talk has been when you guys have asked good questions. So please, I'm sure there's still more. I do want to give you a plug. So we have such an engaged group here that if people want to stay in touch with you and be engaged, that you have um, a blog on political philosophy and applied ethics. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Socratesvotes.com. It's been neglected here lately because I've been focused on the dissertation. But lots of, of opportunity there to engage me. A bunch of nice controversial articles and then a place for you to respond. And also my email is on the... Uh, on the handout, if you, have, yeah, if you have further questions, please. Here's one more plug. Anyone here a student at UT? No one's a student? Well, sign up, because you can take my political philosophy class this summer. <laughs> philosophy or 290, Contemporary Theories of Justice. What about utilitarianism and liberalism and liberalism and communism and all that fun stuff? So next week we have David Reedy, and uh, he is our final uh, discussant. This is um, the last part of the book, and he will wrap everything up and get us ready for the symposium, which then begins the following Friday. So next Monday is David Reedy. And Reedy is the Rawls man. Whatever questions you've had throughout this, this uh, series that haven't been answered, he's the guy to answer. He's not going to sidestep like I have. He'll say, Rawls would say this, and he'll be very authoritative, and he won't just make it up. He really will know. <laughs> anyway, Matt, thank you very much for your time today. You did a great job and great discussion today, and we appreciate you all. Thank you. Thank all of you. That was an episode of a community study of Justice as Fairness by John Rawls in a five-part series sponsored by Knox County Public Library and the Baker Center for Public Policy. This work is published under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 United States License, copyright 2010, by Knox County Public Library. To find the other recordings in this series, plus more library podcasts, please visit knoxlib.org. That's K-N-O-X-L-I-B dot O-R-G.